Uh, just as a side note for some who might actually be wondering about those verses we just read, when it says there that uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the actual language there does not mean uh, grasped in, in terms of reaching for something he doesn't possess. Uh, it meant um, hanging on to something that you already possess, uh, not being willing to to do the condescending thing of taking on human flesh is the idea of the passage, just in case someone's confused about that. We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We're picking up with the first verse of chapter 11, and I go through to the sixth verse of that same chapter. Uh, if Romans is one of the more challenging books of the Bible to study, and I certainly believe it is, then the section of Romans we're currently in, which is chapters 9 to 11, is one of the most challenging sections of this very challenging letter. And so if you've been feeling that at any level, particularly in recent weeks and months, I just want you to know you're not alone. Uh, I feel that too. Nevertheless, and in spite of the challenges presented by this book of Romans, this has, I think, been a very encouraging letter for us as a church and individually. Um, and I think uh, it's a very grounding letter for us as a church in a number of ways, and I hope that you've experienced that as well as we've worked our way through. Now this section of Romans, uh, again, chapters 9 to 11 that we're in the midst of and, and kind of hitting the home stretch on, uh, hopefully you'll recall is one that is dealing with the question, the whole question of Jesus and the Jewish people and the puzzling situation that that is, especially with regard to their lack of responsiveness to Jesus as their Messiah. And so far we've seen uh, two main things regarding the cause or the source of their unresponsiveness to Jesus. Chapter 9 has made it clear that one of the reasons for the unresponsiveness of the Jewish people is to be found in the sovereign purposes of God, who as a matter of practice although he had set apart the nation of Israel as a whole, nevertheless also continually made distinctions amongst the various descendants of Abraham, blessing some and passing by others. In other words, God's sovereign purposes seem to have always had in view an Israel within Israel. God had always exercised a degree of selectivity, blessing Isaac, but not Ishmael, Jacob, but not Esau. And that kind of thing has been going on from the very beginning so one of the realities behind the Jews' unresponsiveness to Jesus can be traced absolutely to the sovereign actions and choices and purposes of God. But the other cause of the Jews' unresponsive to the Lord Jesus, as Romans 9, verse 30 through 10, verse 21 makes, I think, equally clear, that can be traced to the Jews' own obstinacy, to their hard-heartedness, their hard-headedness, their rebellion. They rejected Jesus, and not because they were made to, but because they wanted to. They did not want to submit to Jesus as their King and Lord and Savior. One writer sum summarizes it like this. While it is true that those who are not true Israelites were not divinely chosen, it's also true that they rejected the Messiah. Israel's unbelief is also the result of her willful rejection of the truth of the gospel, which God revealed in the Old Testament and again, in much fuller detail in the New. The Old Testament scriptures often speak of him who was to come to save condemned sinners. The prophets who spoke of him were rejected and persecuted and even put to death. And when Jesus finally came and presented himself to his people as their Messiah, they rejected him as their king. We have no king but Caesar, their leaders cried out to Pilate. Their guilt was undeniable 
and inexcusable. And this guilt Paul stresses in Romans 10. So, God's sovereignty is a cause, human responsibility, human choice is a cause, side by side, Romans 9 and 10. And now, and here's the thing, you see, now that the causes of Israel's unbelief have been explored in chapters 9, chapter 10, Paul turns in chapter 11 to the consequences of their unbelief. The consequences. And specifically, Paul starts out by asking and answering this question, does Israel's willful rebellion and rejection of the gospel mean that God has written off his people? In other words, does the fact that Israel wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus mean that God is now finished with them? Yes, God seems to have always exercised a degree of selectivity within his people. Yes, the true descendants of Abraham are not confined to only those who were ethnically and physically descendants of the patriarch, which the inclusion of the Gentiles makes clear. But what then does all of that mean? Does that mean that God is now finished with Israel, the nation, the people? Have we moved on? Is that all over and done with? What are we to make of all this? Our study of Romans 11 over the next few weeks should help us to sort some of that out. With that as an introduction, let me ask you to please pray with me before we read the passage itself. Please pray. Father God, please help us now as we wade into the potentially deep and complicated and sometimes um, overwhelming waters of Romans 11. Help us to understand what Paul, your scribe and our brother, was saying, what he intended when he wrote these words under the inspiration of your spirit. Help us to know not only what they're saying, but also what they're doing and why it even matters in the first place. You wouldn't have put them here and preserved them for us if we didn't need them, so help us to get to the bottom of all that. And please do that in your way and in your time. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read to you uh, the passage we're looking at. I'm going to actually start back a couple verses before what's in your bulletin, chapter 10, verse 20, just to get a little bit more context. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel... Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, since we're just getting started here in chapter 11, let me just say by way of clarification that we will not be dealing with uh, this morning what the entirety of this chapter has to say. 
about the present and future status of Israel with regard to the gospel. We will deal with the verses before us this morning and the next week, the next handful. And obviously the goal will be at the end, we get to the end of chapter 11. Uh, we'll try to tie all these things together and hopefully come to some conclusions about it. But for now, let's just think about verses 1 to 6. There's plenty enough there for us this morning. And so in the wake of this quotation in chapter 10, verse 21, which I read to you uh, from Isaiah about Israel, by which I, mean, I think he means uh, the nation of Israel there, but the Jewish people as a whole. But in the wake of this quotation about Israel being a disobedient and contrary people, Paul then asks an obvious and related question. Has God rejected his people? In other words, has God responded to their rejection with a rejection of his own? In response to this question, Paul wastes no time and very clearly asserts, by no means. And then in the wake of that, he goes on to make several statements that back up his assertion. That first statement is found in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what's Paul saying or doing here? Sinclair Ferguson, in a sermon on this chapter, says that Paul starts out by providing an autobiographical reason for believing that God hasn't rejected his people. And the reason Paul gives is essentially, look at me. Look at me. I'm a true Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe from which the first king of Israel came, Saul, by the way, which is certainly Paul's, surely Paul's namesake. But not only that, but Paul was a devout, zealous, seriously committed Jewish man. He was a Pharisee of the first order. He was going around persecuting Christians, having them murdered and arrested. I mean, if there was ever an ideal candidate for a Jewish person to be rejected by God, it was Paul, hard-hearted, Jesus-hating Paul when he was still Saul. But what does God do? Does he reject Paul? Did he reject Paul? No, just the opposite. He converted him. He stopped him in his tracks. He rendered him broken and helpless. He showed him where he was totally and completely wrong about Jesus. And he turned him around and he set him about doing the very thing that only days earlier he'd been arresting other people for doing. So Paul says, I'm exhibit A in demonstrating that God has not rejected his people. Because if anyone should have been rejected, it was me. And yet I wasn't. And what an encouragement that is to know that our God is the kind of God who can save anyone, no matter how hard-hearted they seem to us. Our God is the kind of God who makes his enemies his friends. And not just friends, he makes them family. You may be sitting here this morning on the fence about this whole Christianity thing. You may be sitting here thinking that you've got a pretty terrible track record. You may be thinking that you've done a lot of pretty horrible things in your life, that there's no way that God could or would be able or even willing to forgive you. You may think you've gone too far or sinned too much or too heinously or been too hard-hearted. Or perhaps you're sitting here as a Christian but thinking about someone you know, someone you love or care for, you've been praying for, hoping for uh, the fact that one day they will hear and understand and believe the good news about Jesus Christ. And yet when you look at their life and you think about what you know about them and how they think and feel and 
what kind of worldview they're operating out of, when you think about all those things, sometimes, honestly, you get a little discouraged. Because if you're honest with yourself, you'd say that you just can't imagine how this person would ever respond to the gospel. If, you ever, if you're just being totally honest with yourself, you're thinking the whole thing is in the too hard basket. I mean, you're praying for them, but even as you do, you're pretty skeptical about the outcome. But let me tell you something. Don't be skeptical. Whether you're sitting there thinking that you've gone too far personally and God has already made up his mind about you, or whether you're sitting there thinking that the friend or family member you've been praying for is just never going to respond and God's already written them off, let me tell you again, it's not true. Look at Paul. Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. Our God is the God who is in the business of making his enemies his friends and even his family. So the first thing Paul offers to back up his contention that God has not rejected his people is to offer an autobiographical reason, saying, in essence, look at me. The second thing he says that serves to back up his statement a little further is found in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's a brief statement, but it's an important one. Now, if you were here when we looked at Romans 8.29, then you may remember how we spent some time thinking about this whole idea of foreknowledge and what it does and does not mean. And where we landed upon uh, this, uh, was this understanding that God's foreknowledge um, is not something that is based on what He foresees, you know, looking down the corridors of time, but actually based upon what He foreordains or plans or purposes. I was reading a theological exam recently, and the person taking the exam used a very helpful analogy. He said that a person might be reading a novel and could skip ahead to discover what the ending would be and how the action would conclude. And that's a kind of foreknowledge that people might have. But God's foreknowledge isn't like that. It isn't based on his looking ahead in a book he didn't write. Rather, God's foreknowledge is based upon the fact that he wrote the book. And as the person put it on his exam, the characters, the plot, the conflict, the action, the climax, and resolution are all written by God. He knows how things turn out because he's the author, not because he was able to read ahead to see what happens. And so Paul is here talking about God not rejecting his people whom he foreknew, by which he means a people that he determined beforehand that he was going to set apart and bless and love and be their God and they would be his people. God's already set the course on this whole thing. He's already written the story beginning to end. And the plot line of the story has consistently shown God setting apart and preserving a people for himself. And yet, it has also shown these same people at different points, rebelling against God in various ways, various times, and then God visiting them with judgment and discipline, and then God relenting and showing mercy and preserving a remnant of the people for himself, And this is what you've seen all along the way as you read through the Old Testament. God will preserve the root even as he simultaneously prunes away some of the branches. In short, what Paul is saying by means of this admittedly pithy kind of phrase is that, as Stott puts it, rejection and foreknowledge are mutually incompatible ideas. If God is determined to foreknow a people, a nation, that means he's determined to forelove them to set them apart, to bless them. And even though he may discipline them, 
even though he may make distinctions amongst them, as he did with Jacob and Esau, he would still preserve at least a remnant of them. And they would not and could not ever be completely rejected by him. That's a great encouragement, I think, for us within these verses. Uh, and I think it's for this reason, at least, because, as another writer observes, uh, God's faithfulness to his people through the ages means that we can count on his continuing to be faithful to his people now, in this age, in the age of his church. We can trust that God is not going to toss his church and people aside, even though, humanly speaking, there might be every reason in the world to do so. And I don't know about you, but I, I, uh, or how much you think about these things, but I look with growing despair at the way in which the church, the evangelical church, is increasingly unwilling to hold the line on all sorts of issues, whether it is the sanctity of life or the nature of biblical marriage or issues related to gender and sexuality or the uniqueness of Christ and the absolute necessity of his atoning work. I, mean, I feel genuine distress as I watch the church all over the place give ground and refuse to hold the line on these issues. It's genuinely distressing to me. And surely there have been and will continue to be consequences that come to God's people as the church steadily gives ground and caves in on this issue and that one. But even in the wake of that, it is at least a comfort to know that God has not. And because God does not change, He will not. He will not reject the people whom He foreknew. Even His wayward, faltering, sometimes train wreck of a church. He will not forsake or abandon. And there is comfort in that. So after giving an autobiographical reason to back up his assertion that God has not rejected his people, Paul then gives a second reason, a the, more of a theological reason to support his convictions. God will not reject a people he's foreknown. And then following right on the heels of that, he gives a third reason, which you might call a biblical or historical reason or example to back up what he's saying. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So what's going on with this quotation? What's the point being made here by means of this reference to Elijah? I think it helps to think a little bit about the context for a moment, especially if you don't know uh, this story about Elijah. But, uh, you know, Elijah was a prophet. He was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel to announce God's impending judgment on them because of their sin. And uh, one writer gives a helpful summary of that whole situation. He puts it this way. He says, Elijah's ministry began with the announcement that there would be no more rain in the land until he gave the word. Elijah was then sent into hiding until the time when God would send the rains. And after a considerable time passed, God commanded Elijah to present himself to King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, and to announce that the rains were coming. And when Elijah stood before Ahab, he challenged the false gods of Ahab and Jezebel, his wicked wife, to a contest on Mount Carmel. And in this contest of sorts, the false gods were exposed when God revealed his power by sending fire from heaven and consuming a watered-down sacrifice offered by Elijah. 
Nevertheless, in spite of these events on, uh, on the top of Mount Carmel, Israel did not repent as a nation, and Ahab and Jezebel remained in power. Worse yet, Jezebel vowed to put Elijah to death. And when Elijah saw that his ministry had proven to be a failure, or so he thought, he turned and he fled. And Elijah, in his moment of despair, uh, he's discouraged, he's despairing, and he thought that it was all over for Israel. He ran away because he believed God had or should have given up on his rebellious people. But what is the divine response to him? What is God's response to him in the midst of his despair and discouragement? He says, God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Right? So even when Israel was almost completely apostate, so much so that God sent a prophet to warn them, even then God still hadn't written them off, even when this same prophet Elijah mistakenly believed he was the only faithful one left, what did God do? God very patiently and kindly informed him that he was way wrong on that, and that there were at least 7,000 other people in that nation that is a remnant that were still faithful to God. Elijah couldn't see it. Elijah didn't know about it, but it was still true. And so this writer continues. So Elijah was a prophet, but he was, he was wrong about Israel's future. He was wrong because he linked the hope of Israel to the works of Israelites rather than to the sovereign grace of God. He linked their hopes to their works, not to the sovereign grace of God. God always finishes what he starts. Because of this, God preserved a remnant. It was not man's faithfulness that kept the hope of Israel alive, but it was God's faithfulness. In other words, Israel's disobedience has not destroyed their hope. And so Paul, looking back at Israel's past, he sees God's dealings with her way back when, and he goes from there and he kind of draws a line, he extends it into the present, into his own day, which is why he then says what he does in verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So again, Paul sees this principle, right? He sees this pattern of God's working back in the days of Elijah. He sees God preserving a remnant, and then he fast-forwards to his own day, and he looks around, and he sees the same principle in operation. He sees God's graciousness to his people still on display. And it's a graciousness coming out of the person of God, not based upon anything to be found in the people to whom he's being gracious. And yet the Jews in Paul's day had almost completely rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as a nation. And yet God had not completely rejected them. Paul, as we've already seen, was a living example of that. But there were other examples. Other apostles, men like Nicodemus, Jewish people in the various cities to which the gospel had gone... Certainly, the response of the Jews was not anything like the response of the Gentiles, which Romans 11 will have something to say about as well. But there was still a response amongst the Jews, small though it may have been by comparison. There was definitely, definitely a responding remnant. It was not long after this that Paul would have made a visit to Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts 21. And uh, please note the very interesting thing that's said in Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. All the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, 
how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Right? Luke, the author of Acts, Luke writes about thousands of Jews believing. Small number by comparison, but a number nonetheless. There was still a remnant among God's people to be found, a remnant from amongst the people, the nation of Israel, that were still responding to him. And their response, and the reason for their response, was because of his graciousness, not because of their works. God had not rejected his people. He had not abandoned his plans or promises. He was still preserving a remnant. Now, we'll see in the next verses, there's a lot more to be said here. There are layers of God's workings amongst his people. There's a wider plan. There's a bigger picture. There's a sophistication and pattern and process to what God was doing and had been doing to and through the Jewish people, including the hardening of hearts and how all of that played out for the Gentiles and how even later on, all of that, the response of the Gentiles was going to work out for the Jews. So there's this whole pattern that's going on here that Paul's going to talk about. And you may wonder, why does this matter? For one thing, it matters because this is, this, what Paul is giving us here essentially is a framework for understanding history, human history. What's going on in the world from day one till now? In this little chapter, he's going to give us some hooks to hang things on, a framework to see and understand some big structures of what God is doing through history. So we'll have more to say about all that in coming weeks, but one of the things we're going to see, and I'll, I'll close with this, but one of the things we're going to see is that there's always a wider context to what God is doing. There's a bigger plan in operation that goes beyond what we can see or know or understand. I mean, I mean here's Elijah. Elijah's a prophet of God. He's a prophet, mind you. And he had no idea what God was doing. He thought he was the only faithful one left. And he was off by a factor of 7,000. There's a bigger picture. And that's one of the messages of Romans 11. There's more going on. There's more going on than meets the eye. Even the hard and difficult realities of the present can be part of a bigger, more hopeful, God-honoring reality down the road. Even things as difficult to think about as the hardening of Jewish hearts. God weaves all these things together. Uh, he weaves all these things into his tapestry that on their own in themselves may not seem beautiful and aren't. They may be, there may be many sort of brush strokes on this canvas that up close seem dark and angular and even out of place. But when, when you step back and you take in a larger view of what's going on, that you see that even those strokes contribute significantly to a bigger picture that is unspeakably beautiful, but we will only be able to see from the perspective of heaven. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for, um, for your word, um, even and especially this portion of your word that um, 
that we're going to wrestle with and work our way through precisely for that reason because you spoke it, you gave it to us. There's things that you want us to know and learn from this. So help us to do that. Help us to see um, very much um, something of this pattern of your working in history, in our history, in our world. And uh, Father, help us to see behind that your gracious hand, your gracious design. Help us to see, Father, that um, and believe that you are the God who uh, controls and guides history to the place you want it to go. Help us to see, Father, that um, and be encouraged by the fact that, that you are that kind of God with that kind of authority and power. And help us to see that in human terms as we are surrounded by all kinds of people that um, don't profess any faith in you or confidence or trust in you. The people that we um, struggle sometimes to believe will ever be open to the things of God. Um, Father, help us to know and believe and trust that um, just as you were to take, you're able to take uh, Saul and, and uh, convert him, and he became Paul, our brother and apostle. Help us to believe, Father, that you are, uh, you are still in the business of doing that even today. Help us to pray and act and speak and live uh, in the confidence of that. And uh, give us the privilege, Father, as individuals and as a church to, um, to, of seeing you work and seeing you draw uh, people to yourself and seeing this ongoing outworking of your plans and purposes that involves both the nation of Israel and even those nations outside the Gentiles with whom we identify. Father, we thank you, Father. But for all these things, we ask for understanding, we ask for patience and wisdom. And um, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We will take up an offering now for those who want to support the work of this church or a number of ministries that we support through this church.